at our retreats, we would go on like retreats with the X Game Ministry and they would like bring like a Mary Kay lady to like teach us how to wear makeup because they thought there was like some sort of like feminine pro like hole in our femininity that we needed to like embrace. This episode contains a little bit of sexual language, so I would caution that it might not be great for kids. And this is a religious topic, at least in part, because Julie comes from this world of reconciling Christianity and homosexuality. I don't think that this is uninteresting to non-religious people, because I think most of us would agree that that's one of the more interesting cultural intersections in America today. So I would encourage you to keep listening. One note is that we're not going to debate on this podcast whether or not homosexual sex is morally right or wrong or is a sin, because that isn't the point of this podcast. But of course, that's the backdrop of this whole story. So feel free to be frustrated that we aren't talking about that and go seek out some good resources that will talk about that. Now, plenty of you who are not Christians will not even understand like why this is an issue. And without going too far into detail, let me just say this. It's a result of people, many of them excellent and loving people, taking the Bible very seriously. All right, Julie. So we spoke briefly on the elections reaction episode, one of three interminable election reactions for two weeks. We were just pouring out our feelings and you were one of those people who helped us make sense of them. So thank you for that. Now we are ready collectively as a podcast community and maybe as a nation to stop navel-gazing and start talking about content again, some real real questions and issues. So we're going to get into that with you. Can you tell us, give us your basic story, and you can take as long as you need, acquaint us with who you are and how you came to be in this position that you're in now. Definitely. Um, so thanks for having me. You're just great, Dan. And I feel really thankful Stop to be it. a part of this conversation. I do. Um, but I, so I'm from Texas. I live in DC now and I'm from Dallas, Texas. I was actually born outside of Houston and my family, I have a very loving, wonderful family that was in a, it was a really conservative Christian environment. And we sort of grew up in like Bible Baptist type churches and I actually homeschooled all the way to high school. So we were like that kind of like conservative Christian. Second level conservative <laughs> Christian. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My mom wanted to like keep me away from the gays. So we homeschooled. And um, I didn't actually do school. I was just like splashing in creeks and outside playing basketball, watching TV all day. We didn't do any school. The goal was just to like make sure I wasn't around like the secular people who were going to like be a bad influence. Hold on here. (laughs) Uh, My experience with homeschooled kids mostly is that they're like pretty brilliant and they got a better education than I got by and large. No, most of them were like reading Aristotle and Greek by the age of 12. Right. And you were just like playing basketball. Totally. Yeah. I was watching four episodes of Saved by the Bell every day. I was watching Matlock every morning at 10.05 a.m. Like it was TV all day. No school. It was great. I loved it. (laughs) Did you go to college? I did. How'd you get in? So I went to high school actually, and I was getting like tens on all my like math quizzes and stuff because I hadn't done math. And it took all of high school to kind of start to get the hang of what was going on. You mean 10 out of 100? Out of 100. Not 10 Mm -hmm. out of 10. Yeah, and this was for like the reviews at the first week of school when they're like, we're just going over that stuff you learned in sixth grade. And so there were a lot of tears. Wow. And then, yeah, I I spent college catching up. And then I actually got, I, I went to grad school. I finally felt like I was in a place where I could learn things. And I was like, now I feel like I need to learn something. 
So I just kind of did all that to catch up, but it was a journey. Okay. So I feel like this is going to be relevant to our conversation. Your parents chose to keep you homeschooled. It is clear from their lack of education efforts that the purpose of them homeschooling you was just to keep you away from like secular influences. Completely. Whereas a lot of people are homeschooled by like very intelligent parents who feel like they can do a better job. And maybe it's also a secondary, you know, desire to sort of like control what their Mm -hmm. kids are taught. Yeah. You only had the latter. Yeah, only. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it was pretty wild. And it obviously like didn't work because I mean, it was great. I had fun. My brother and I were like besties when we were little, but I still knew by the time I was in middle school, despite knowing that I loved Jesus and despite like memorizing the entire book of Philippians when I was in middle school, like I was like a serious Christian that was like in Awanas doing my little like derby races with my Awana cars. But I I knew that I was gay by the time I was in middle school, uh, maybe even a little bit earlier. And I just... I didn't know what to do with it because um, the only messages I had heard about gay people growing up were that uh, they were so disgusting and that God didn't like gay people, that they're certainly, um, they weren't Christians. They were just making this choice to like be rebellious. And so I knew I was like, I'm not like rebelling. I'm like, you know, reading like Bible verses and going to Sunday school. And I just get the butterflies when a girl sits down next to me at the cat on the couch at youth group, you know? And so I just kind of sat on that and I didn't really do anything with it. I kept being really involved in youth group. And when I was in high school, I started to come out to some uh, like coaches and friends and I wasn't too concerned about it. I was just like, gosh, I, I know that my church and my family are going to think that I'm really terrible and really rebellious, but I, I know that, that that's not the case. And so I just kind of sat on it for a long time, was processing it. And I ended up deciding Valentine's Day of my junior year in high school that I was going to tell my parents, I was going to tell my family. So um, I told my mom and three days later, she had me in her car Uh, to go meet with this guy named Ricky, who was um, the executive director of a ministry called Living Hope, which was a member ministry of Exodus International. So it was like the local sort of ex-gay ministry in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I didn't, I didn't want to go because I didn't want to have to like be the spotlight. Like I didn't want to be a problem. I didn't want to need to change. I just kind of wanted like all this to go away. But I knew that in order to please my family and be accepted, that this was what I needed to do. So I was like, I'll, I'll go meet with this guy. When you say you wanted all of it to go away, do you mean you wanted your homosexual longings or feelings to go away or that you wanted the conflict with your family to go away? The conflict. Okay. Yeah. I didn't have a strong opinion about being gay. Like I wasn't sure if it was true that God had sort of like a special place in hell for us. <laughs> But I didn't think so because I yeah. just knew I was like, gosh, I know I knew God loved me and I knew that I was a Christian. And so I was just kind of I was I was OK with bracketing these questions until like later to be able to process like, what does this mean? And I, I kind of wish that had been the case that I had been able to. But since yeah. I told my family while I still live there, that wasn't really an option at that point. Wow. Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit because I think it's hard for heterosexuals like myself to understand the experience of a gay person. So Mm -hmm. you, you kind of just flitted past this of just like, I got butterflies when a girl would sit down next to me in youth group, which is exactly how I would have said it myself, except I (laughs) might've also said a half chub at that time in my life when boners were 
easy to come by. Um, but can you just like, I mean, this is kind of silly, but can you just like walk us through that? Like just narrate it from yourself as like a person coming of age sexually. What was that experience like for you? You know, it was all tied together for me because like, I think there's more to being gay than just like being sexually aroused by other, you know, women or at that time girls. And so I think early on, it started by me feeling like I was just different than other girls. And I tended to really like, like doing things with the boys more and like playing sports and like being outdoors and like, what age are we talking about here? Like five, six, seven oh, okay. years old. Okay, really so it early. So wasn't like right. sexual attraction right, right, yet, right. but it was just okay. like, man, I feel like I'm a little bit different. And then by the time I was in probably like fifth or sixth grade, it was just I noticed that like I was sort of like watch the girls. Like I think the girls were watching the boys. Like I would just kind of like be like her hair. It's just like so sparkly and soft, <laughs> and it was just really innocent. It was, like I remember yeah. one girl was like reading Bible verses in Sunday school. And I was like, her lips are just so like red and pretty. And like, I'm just like watching this girl's lips while she's reading Bible verses in Sunday school. Right. Like, and so then I got to a place where I started feeling like a lot of my like lesbian coaches in basketball, I was like, I feel like there's just like something about them that I recognize in me. Yeah. And I didn't know, I didn't know what it was, but it was just like, there's something fundamentally about the way that they exist in the world that I feel like I see myself in. So it was kind of all these different things of both like how I experienced myself in the world and friendships and relationships with boys and girls. And then also the like drawn to women in that like mysterious way that feels Mm -hmm. like, you know, it ends up being like chemistry and sexual attraction and whatnot later. Yeah. That's interesting. Thinking about the really early stages of sexuality, like when you were think when you're talking about um, watching the girls red lips moving, reading the Bible verses, which, by the way, is kind of a, it's awesome moment of irony. Uh, I was thinking about sixth grade for me, and I had this just gigantic love affair crush on this girl. Uh, who I won't name just because this is an embarrassing story. But so like the way I showed her that I loved her was like totally pegging her in dodgeball and like (laughs) her legs totally fell out from under her and she like scraped her (laughs) legs and arms on the asphalt and was like bleeding and had to go to the doctor or the the nurse or whatever. And that's funny. And it's awkward. And like, you know, we would go on a school trip and I would like, we had disposable cameras when I was in sixth grade and the, the game was like, try and get a picture of your friend without them, like surprise them with the flash. It was called to flash someone. That's not what that really means now. But, and I would do it to her because I wanted a photo of her that I could like look at and pine over later in my sixth grade bedroom. But like, you think about these things, they aren't purely sexual in the way that I would say like, Oh, Hey wife, I'm feeling sexual right now. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that stark like Mm -hmm. right now i can say hey honey that's really interesting what you're saying about work but like can we please have sex like i can really (laughs) separate those out but in sixth grade it's all emerging and it's it's all connected to sports it's it's all this big mess right in in your little early puberty mind and so that's just interesting i haven't i don't know that i've really put myself in the shoes of someone who sort of comes of age sexually as a homosexual yeah. or a non-heterosexual. So that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And what's so interesting, what's fascinating about it is like LGBT people are one of the only minority groups that are the minority like in their family. <laughs> and so it's not like you have like 
somebody in your world, you do feel really alienated from your immediate community because there's nobody that's like, oh, yeah, honey, I've been there before. This was what it was like when I was a kid. It's like mm. you're the other in your own family. And so it, it is really, really complicated. And especially in Christian you know, families, a lot of times it doesn't feel like a safe place to be able to tell much of the truth about who you are or what you're feeling, even what you're experiencing or asking or questioning. And it's really like alienating. Yeah. And, and at a time when you have way more questions than answers, I can understand mm-hmm. that that would cause quite a bit of mental suffering. Okay. So now you're in the story. Uh, sorry for mm-hmm. that divergence to <laughs> <laughs> apparently talk about myself in sixth grade is really what that was all about. Um, no, but so now you're in the car and you're in high school and you're on your way to this ex-gay ministry. Okay. So pick it up from there. Yeah, so um, I I didn't want to go, but I quickly realized, so this ministry, I met with this this guy named Ricky, who was the executive director, and then they had like support groups on Thursday nights, and they had like healing prayer group on Tuesday nights, and a lot of other sort of events going on. And what I found was that it was one of the only communities where other people, they would say that they struggled with same-sex attraction, like that was how it was framed. Because, like, it was wrong to sort of say you're gay and, like, claim that as, like, your identity. But it was other people who were, like, some version of gay or same-sex attracted or whatever that also loved Jesus that sort of could understand, like, what it's like to be in my shoes. And so I didn't want to become straight, but I also wanted, like, longed for a community of people that understood both parts of me. And I found that I made some friends there that I'm still really close to to this day that— understood. And there was a sense of like solidarity there uh, that I haven't experienced in a whole lot of other places. So, so in that sense, it was initially a really like great sort of, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. Every single plan of your mother's just backfired wildly in your (laughs) whole childhood. (laughs) It really did. (laughs) So she takes you to conversion therapy and you end up meeting a group of people that you can be friends with and talk about and like share your experience with. Totally. Yeah. It was, and I was really, that was thankful for that. Yeah. Um, but of course it's in the context of this thing that now is like universally derided, this conversion therapy pretty much across the board. So can you tell us, let's get, (laughs) I just, there's so much like hilarious irony in your story that I'm, I'm like struggling to focus on the seriousness of it because it's just (laughs) so good from a narrative perspective. So apologies listeners. If you think I'm being cavalier here, I just, as a storyteller, I like this stuff. So, but the actual thing that they were doing, what was it? Like, what were the techniques? So here's, here's where things weren't great or were just like really, really problematic. They had me start giving my like ex-gay testimony for their donor banquet when I was 17. So six months after I got there. And you were still gay. So yeah, like nobody has an ex-gay testimony when they're 17. Right. So my whole experience was sort of like, I, I think what they would say is you are gay because you had some problematic issues in your childhood. Often they would say like attachment with the same sex parent. And it was just basic conversion therapy, like you reparative therapy, you, um, maybe you were sexually abused, whatever it would be, you have these wounds in your childhood. And so what they would do is say, we're going to talk through these wounds through these different like counseling textbooks and pastoral counseling and whatnot. And we're going to heal those. And then you're going to start to feel a sort of like Rather than looking to people of the same sex to meet these needs from childhood, you're going to start to feel like you're one of the girls, or if you're a boy, you're going to feel like you're one of the boys, yeah. and you'll be a, 
begin to experience attraction to like the mystery of the opposite sex, right? That's what they would say. So a lot of our, our time was around working through those like quote unquote childhood wounds. Sometimes it was about like accountability. So like, did you masturbate this week? If so, like, what do you think caused that? Like, who were you thinking about? Hmm. Sometimes it would be like, you know, I looked at porn this week or, or whatever it might have been that people were doing. It was just basically like support group. The issue for most of us that have been through it was that we sort of did the steps. Like I took all the steps and I was doing week in and week out everything that I could be at. And after like three or four or five or six or seven years, I'm realizing like I'm still attracted to girls. Like I'm still attracted to women. And I would like go on dates with guys and try to like, I started wearing like makeup and like jeans that fit and all these things, but I was still like attracted to women. There was no amount of behaving more feminine. Wait, did you uh, just say you you started wearing (laughs) jeans that fit? (laughs) What year year is this? (laughs) This was probably like, uh, I don't know, maybe 2007 or 2008. Okay. Cause in 2007, I was wearing like girl jeans that really fit. (laughs) And you were like rebelling with baggy jeans. Yeah, that's how that went. Okay, okay, all right. Yeah, so they would, at our retreats, we would go on like retreats with X-Gay Ministry and they would like bring like a Mary Kay lady to like teach us how to wear makeup because they thought there was like some sort of like feminine, pro- like hole in our huh. femininity that we needed to like okay. embrace. I feel like I keep interrupting you, but there's so much here I want to unpack. Okay, so when you first started describing the therapy, it sounds mm-hmm. like it was actually based on like a testable scientific hypothesis. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it. <laughs> it. It sounds like it. Right. Well, or you could maybe argue that it was tested and it failed even. Right. Yeah. Of like, oh, yeah. Uh, homosexuality comes from certain psychological wounds. And we know through real psychology that like, here's what you do with wounds from childhood. And the theory would go that if you can process through those wounds, then the cause of the disorder will go away and the disorder would reverse itself. My first question is, was there any therapeutic value to sort of thinking through these wounds in your childhood or were they imaginary wounds for you? And therefore there was nothing to work yeah. through. It was both. And I think there were probably, there were definitely some imaginary wounds. Uh, but then there are some ways that I think it's like helpful. Most of us come out of childhood with a little bit of baggage. Oh Yeah. And it's helpful to be able to think through, like, you know, what do I think of my parents? How was connection with my mom and my dad when I was little? What are some unmet needs? I would say that, like, that level of interrogation really did help with my sense of, like, self-awareness. Yeah. And that's why I think for the first few years, I thought that it was helpful. Yeah. I mean, I later felt like it was really damaging. But in those first few years, it was like, gosh, I feel like I have all these new friends And I am like taking time to really think through childhood and who I am and how this worked out. And and it wasn't really till later when I wasn't changing that I started to be like, oh, my gosh, like they're still pushing me into something that is clearly not working and is actually causing a lot of shame. You know, when when you don't change, you start to go like, what am I doing wrong? And, you know, it teaches families. So there's a lot of issues that end up becoming like really damaging. But initially, there were some things that I benefited from. Well, that's so interesting to me because it is like a pseudoscience insofar as it does have some real science in it, but then it Mm -hmm. sounds like that original hypothesis, if you remove or if you heal these primal wounds, then this disorder will go away. That's the part that's not true. Exactly. Right. So you did like real therapeutic work, which is probably, generally speaking, a good thing for people to do, Mm -hmm. but on a flawed overall hypothesis And that's where the damage came in. But it actually explains, partially at least, and this is what you're saying, 
why you stuck with it for so long when you totally. weren't changing. So why mm-hmm. even stick around? Well, it's real therapy in, in a sense that's kind of generic and helpful in many ways. And this, these friends that you made who were kind of, you had no one like that before. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. So I find that really interesting. Yeah. And I think, and there was a lot of fear because like, you know, they would talk about sort of the gay lifestyle. And they would say, like, you know, the gay lifestyle, people just go and they're just binge sex and drugs and you'll be hooked on meth. You know, they kind of took, like, the gay pride parade and made that, like, the whole gay lifestyle, but then blown up into something even scarier and darker. And it was just like, oh, my gosh, like, that's not who I am. Like, maybe I'm not gay because, like, I don't Mm. want, like, binge sex and drugs. So there was a sense of fear, I think, that, like. They would call it like giving into your flesh if you just sort of embraced your sexuality and were like, oh, this is who I am. I think that's like embracing your flesh and like just going down a path of destruction. So there was a lot of fear that kept me there, too. But I would say the initial draw was like the promise of community and the hope for positive healing and change. So before we move on to your like speaking role engagement and all that that did, one of the things you just said there reminds me of Romans 1 you know, St. Paul, the argument mm-hmm. really appears to be that God gave over humanity to their sinfulness. And the result of that sinful nature was all these things, including sort of homosexual behavior. So mm-hmm. was that made explicitly clear in that program that that was an operating assumption of that program? Yeah, definitely. And they really relied heavily on 1 Corinthians 6, 9, which is like the idolaters and the drunkards and the homosexuals and all these other people won't inherit the kingdom of God. Um, And then it says like, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were transformed by the power of Jesus Christ or the gospel or something. So it's like their, their thing was like, we all were these things, but because of God, here we are. So Right. So it was sort of like, it was okay to have been a homosexual, but it was not okay to be a to homosexual. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So that's like a two-part move. It It's the result of sinful behavior of God giving humans up to their sinful behavior, but there is redemption through Christ, and you can leave, you can leave that identity behind. Because, mm-hmm. of course, anyone could be celibate, mm-hmm. right? But this is different. They're saying you can actually remove gay identity and you're yeah. no longer a drunkard. You're no longer a homosexual. Like, yeah. c- because a drunkard is not getting drunk. A drunkard is a, a thing you would say about yourself. I am a drunkard mm-hmm. rather than I drink X and Y times. Mm-hmm. So they're saying you can get rid of this piece of your identity through mm-hmm. whatever this spiritual work. Totally. Okay. So you get on this circuit. And you're yeah. speaking a bunch. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, I started speaking with this ministry, Living Hope, and I would like travel around with Ricky when he was going to speak and I would talk before him. And and I'm I'm not a liar. So my, my testimony was usually something like, I struggle with homosexuality, but I'm choosing God over my sexuality and I have hope in what will happen as a result of sort of like choosing faithfulness. And sure. so that it was more like hope of what's to come. But um, about three or four years later, um, Exodus International had me start speaking like to their sort of like youth group at the conferences. And then eventually it got to where I was like traveling around with Alan Chambers and the team speaking at what they called Love One Out, which was like Exodus on the road sort of. And they would do like, I think about eight a year. And I was at that point, gosh, I was just out of college and I had gotten to the place by the end of college where I was like, this doesn't work. 
Hmm. We're all like very gay. And I had also begun to see a lot of friends like come and go by that point. And I was beginning to see that the ones who left, a lot of them left and went into sort of like really destructive sort of places because they just felt so much shame and hmm. they hadn't been like mentored into how to be like a healthy, well-adjusted human being who's both gay and a Christian. And so they would just sort of like nosedive, understandably. And so I was beginning to really feel the weight of that. And then I had some friends who, who left and just sort of like entered into churches and communities and found theologies that were more affirming of same-sex relationships. And they seemed a lot healthier and happier than those of us who were still trying to change. So I was just kind of digesting all this while I was speaking. And I finally got to a place where I felt so much agony. I just, I felt like what I was involved in, like I couldn't leave the ministry. I felt so much fear and so much, gosh, fear more than anything else. Just fear that my whole entire life was revolving around this going away or this changing and it wasn't going to change. You're literally on stage talking to thousands of people as like this spokesperson for the fact that this could change. And when someone asks you, what's your hope for the future as part of your testimony, you're saying my hope for the future is I won't be gay anymore. Yeah. And I was still gay. Yeah. So that's wow. Yeah. It was really so, and I would like go on dates with guys and, and I was just like, every time they would try to like kiss me or something, I would just like rush home and break up with them on Facebook. And I just remember sitting on my bed being like, this is like, I am gay. Like, this is what gays do. So I eventually kind of worked up the courage to write Alan Chambers, um, who was the president of Exodus International at the time. And I was like, I cannot do this anymore. Like, I'm gay. I don't know what this means theologically for me. I don't know where where I land with it. But like, I have to be out of this. And this is causing like tremendous harm and damage. And I think you need to apologize for all that you've done to LGBT people through the years. So Alan was like, will you just meet with me for dinner? He was like, come to Atlanta for this next conference. This can be your last one, but just meet me for dinner. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I go meet with Alan and he was basically like, listen, I think you're right. And I've been hearing from a lot of people who have been really harmed by Exodus. And I don't know, I need somebody that's going to like, just tell the truth that they didn't change and to help help us figure out like whether or not this needs to end or what we're going to do. And so I was like, damn it. Like, I wanted to just be out. I wanted to be all done. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) But I couldn't really, I I did feel like it was important for somebody to try to start, like, bringing change from within and to help mend some of the damage that had been done. Yeah. I I only laugh because it's like, for me, speaking from my own place of faith, it's like, of course, that's what you want me to do, God. Like, <laughs> it just gets funny after a while of like, of yeah. course, it's the thing I didn't want to do. I mean, that's just, you know, so that's why I'm laughing, which is to yeah. say, because you're uniquely positioned there to say the truth, right? Mm-hmm. So what did you decide? So I decided I would do it for one more year. But now with a totally different script. Yeah. Where I was just like, hey, like, I tried this all these years and I'm gay. And at that point, I was like, I'm not convinced that like I should enter into same sex relationships, but like at a minimum, like you need to know I have not changed. And interesting. Just kind of talked about, yeah, I, I think I started moving into sort of like this, the celibate gay position Yeah, as it was like Exodus was beginning to shut down. And Alan ended up saying during that year, like I, I need to just shut this down completely. So I kind of just like was a part of running that into the ground.
There's a delineation here. There is position one. Homosexuals can be converted to heterosexuals. There is mm-hmm. position two. That does not work and is psychologically harmful. Nonetheless, homosexuals should be celibate like monks and nuns. And mm-hmm. then there is position three that homosexual sexual acts are neither sinful nor inherently good. It's the same as other sex, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about he tried to take the group from position one to position two. Was that just too much cognitive dissonance for donors? And he just didn't want to have the same name. And he just, yeah, you know, I think a big part of the problem was that there were like over 150 member ministries that were like independently running on their own in like, oh, you wow. know, Kansas City or Alabama or wherever. And so he didn't have any control over what was going to go on in those ministries. And many of these ministries still go today. So the ministry that I was taken to when I was 17 is still like alive and well, and they're still, you know, preaching about sort of the gospel of change. So he just thought, I think ending Exodus at least sends a powerful message that this doesn't work. And that was kind of all he could be responsible for. But yeah, it was a big ship to turn. Okay. So I want to ask you, do you have friends who are gay, who are in position two, who believe they should be celibate, but Mm -hmm. not that they should like cease to be gay? Yeah, I actually have a lot of friends because when I first kind of after Exodus, I was like, what am I going to do? Like, what do I think? And so I was kind of in that camp that we, uh, for one reason or another, ended up gay and that it's not going to change, but that we, what we believed about marriage, um, and this isn't where I am now, but it, it felt like a safer place for me after yeah. sort of cu- coming out of Exodus. Um, and what celibate gay Christians believe is that marriage is between a man and a woman, sex belongs in, in marriage alone, and that what's important for gay Christians who are going to be faithful in their understanding of, of faithfulness is like really intimate lifelong friendships and like rich, deep community, because they still have these very real needs for intimacy Uh, But they're obviously not going to be open to marriage or romantic intimacy with anyone. So I think they find themselves in a position of uh, struggling with loneliness and struggling with living in a a world that really does sort of idolize marriage, especially in the church, where it's like that's the end-all, be-all for long-term intimacy. Totally. And, And it's really difficult. It's a really difficult path. But they're definitely some of the most earnest and serious Christians that I've ever met. Yeah, I mean, you think they'd have to be. Right. Because mm-hmm. it's sort of like someone being willing to become a monk or a nun. Totally. And if you Without are sort of like the. Yeah. Right. The sacrifices you're willing to make for what you believe you ought to do or, you know, is the best work you can do in the world. I mean, that that's a serious level of commitment that is not easy to come by. Mm-hmm. Wow. One thing you told me when we spoke earlier is that you did a lot of research during your years working with Exodus. What did you find in that research? Um, Gosh, that's been sort of like a lifelong thing. Like, I think most gay Christians feel so much angst and anxiety that we could have like an honorary PhD in this. (laughs) And I read all the theology that I could get my hands on from conservative theologians, from uh, more progressive theologians just trying to get my head around what are different people saying about Romans 1? What are different people saying about like the institution of marriage in the church? And I found that there were really convincing, compelling arguments on both sides. There were sort of like traditionalist arguments made sense that like sex was between a man and a woman and, and the capacity for procreation is really sort of central to that argument. And they believe that, that tradition and scripture both would call us to continue sort of 
defining marriage that way alone. But then progressive theologians made a lot of sense to me, too, because, you know, I, I do believe that much of what Paul was talking about, much of what we saw in the New Testament referring to, to same-sex sort of sexuality was sort of abusive behaviors between um, men, married men having boys on the side. And there was a lot of like human trafficking and, and it just wasn't like monogamous same-sex relationships between two people who love each other. So I found both arguments compelling and I was like, gosh, if they can't figure this out, how am I supposed to figure it out? But yeah. I also, I think for me, community and sort of the, the fact that in conservative communities, you sort of have to agree to belong because sort of if you land in a more progressive place and you're, you're living and working and worshiping in conservative communities, you kind of like have to go. So that was like swayed me. Yeah. So, but you're talking about the effect of your mind having been changed on which community you could still worship in and be a part of. Let's talk about why your mind changed in the first place. Yeah. So when I, in the summer of 2014, I went to, I was um, recruited to go work on staff at Wheaton College in the chaplain's office because they had a bunch of LGBT students who they knew like needed support, but they didn't know how to support them. So since I was sort of trying to live into like the celibate gay position, they were like, she would be perfect. Um, And when I was there, I began to realize that for one, the students were not doing well. <laughs> it was it was really a, a lot of them. There were amazing, extraordinary students, but it was really hard for them to be in communities that saw them as sort of broken and saw them as like a problem to be fixed, like an issue that was like causing problems on campus, like their existence was. And mm. so they really struggled day in and day out in the dorms, in classrooms, when campus events would flare up, like just sort of feeling like I am not wanted here. And I began to see, um, I was also, I, I experienced a really pretty awful time with the administration where like they loved me personally and they loved the work I was doing. And, uh, but I would get called in by the president and provost on like probably twice a month for them to say like, Hey, we think your ministry is going exceptionally well, but like we're getting letters from donors saying they're pulling funding because you, we hired you. And they have, we have like you know, parents are saying they would never send their kid here with someone like you on staff. This is people who, because there is a celibate gay Christian. Exactly. So I had already done all the research, you know, on both sides of it before going to Wheaton. And I think my time at Wheaton showed me it was a sense of discomfort with LGBT people. Um, It was a sense of not understanding, you know, the story I was telling you about when we're growing up and we just find ourselves. It was a, it was a sense of feeling we had this agenda and that we had this like liberal agenda and all these things that there was just a lot of misunderstanding that the administration knew me and they knew the kids and they knew that wasn't the case, but there was such a gap between people who had sort of gotten to know gay people and those sort of like, and the broader network and constituents who had a lot of power that it ended up leading to what felt like sort of like oppression to some yeah. of us just trying to like follow Jesus and be faithful yeah. in the community. But so, okay, you're talking about social dynamics and fear and, you know, donor bases and, and the financial sway that like conservative donors hold and backlashes against public statements like at InterVarsity or World Vision or whatever, these, these events. But can you connect this back to the Bible or theology itself in terms of... How do you now read Romans 1? What is your view mm-hmm. of scripture that allows you to have this inclusive view? Yeah, I think I would see what Paul is referring to as like somewhat contextual 
in the same way that we take a lot of the verses about slavery and we say, whoa, that was very much related to like this patriarchal context where slavery was like condoned and, you know, women were wearing head coverings and they were supposed to keep quiet in the church. There's all kinds of things that we go, wow, that was very much part of this patriarchal context that we've, we've moved away from because redemption is moving us forward into more equality and more justice. And, and so I think I look to uh, the principles of love and inclusion as more guiding principles than like the literal text that were much more rooted in the context. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're, w- would you be comfortable saying in so stark of terms that like Paul was mistaken on other things and it's possible that he was mistaken on this as well? Or would you not go so far as to say mistaken? I would say he was a product of his culture. I don't know if he was mistaken or if he was trying to like reach people in a certain context, but like we are all the product of a culture. So we're um, both influenced by and using that to influence people with a very different set of values, cultural values than we have now. And that we would think the kingdom of God is for. Right. And what I mean by that is like slavery is a very obvious case. Like that's obviously that was a cultural value then that is not a value in the kingdom of God. Yeah. And yet Paul didn't denounce it. Paul didn't come and say, like, do away with this, throw it out. This is evil. This is wicked. We need to see justice. Paul was just like, hey, be nice to your slave. That's, yeah, he you know? Yeah, <laughs> he assumed slavery is the way I like to, to talk about it. Like, slavery is assumed in the New Testament. Yeah. You don't have... Abo- As is heterosexuality. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that's fascinating. Uh, and I could talk with you about that all day. But because this is a podcast about trying to depolarize things. I don't think we should, we should get lost in the theological and biblical arguments here. Let's, yes. let's uh, turn our gaze, our gaze G A Z E to, uh, <laughs> to like wider culture. You have spent your entire adult life, basically living in this kind of no man's land within Christian culture. It is become clear from this conversation that that's been a difficult place to be, but it also puts you in a position to sort of speak to people on both sides of a huge divide. In fact, on the episode that just went up, I don't know when this one's airing, so either a week or two ago, with Robert Jones, he talked about how same-sex affirmation is the single biggest public policy shift in an eight-year span in American history. Went from 40% approval to 60% approval across all Americans during the eight years that Obama has been off in office. <laughs> and, and where that big question really finds its battlegrounds is in religious communities, mm-hmm. specifically in Christian America. So you're in this unique position. What is it that you would hope that conservative Christians would do moving forward as they interact with the LGBT community and with liberals that disagree with them like what posture can a conservative person listening to this who still holds that theology Mm -hmm. what do you encourage them to do just as they have these conversations with people yeah the first would be i've been i have been pleased with the number of conservative christians who have come out and said hey we have been wrong in the way we've treated lgbt people so even if we aren't at a place where we affirm same-sex relationships, we do realize that we've been unloving and unchristlike. And so I would say being able to acknowledge the failure on the part of the church to love LGBT people well, 
is a really important step. It's one that's been really meaningful to me to see from a lot of conservatives. And that opens the door to begin relationships. And it opens the door for them to begin to get to know LGBT people in a place of, of, my hope would be that they would really listen and really try to understand what would it be like to live your whole entire life as somebody who's entirely oriented toward the same sex. Yeah, I would want them to listen in a way that assumes the best about LGBT people rather than sort of scrutinizing and looking to call out or looking to hold accountable or looking to put in check, but just just to say, I really want to learn what this is like, and I really want to share meals together and, and become friends. Hmm. And then what about liberals, Christian or non-Christians, who are interacting with conservatives who disagree on these questions? What should the posture be of those on the left? Yeah, I think one is to move away from language that say like, oh, you know, conservatives, because of the views they hold are bigots, or they're yeah. on the wrong side of history, or, you know, things like that. For one, it's it's just not true of most conservatives I know. Like most conservatives really, really do have a lot of love in their heart. And in getting to know LGBT people change quite a bit, if, if not becoming affirming, at least becoming really loving and hospitable. Yeah. So I would say just give this sort of respect and dignity to conservatives. Um, but I, I would also say that a lot of times that's coming from a place of sincere hurt and pain. It will help if conservatives can acknowledge, you know, maybe where they've been wrong, uh, maybe not individual humans, but where the conservative church has been wrong toward LGBT people. And to, to give some repentance there, I think it would open the door to make LGBT people for sure feel safer, beginning to establish some of those relationships and, and looking for the best in one another, or, you know, assuming the best about one another. Yeah. So one might assume that there's nothing more that the left should be doing to include the LGBT community because that's kind of the order of the day is inclusion. But mm -hmm. is there a way that the left is actually failing the LGBT community in any way? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people make the assumption that because like marriage equality passed, that we're like past that, that we won and that, the, that it's just totally normal and fine to be gay now. But like, I think a lot of liberals underestimate just how hard it is for gay people, especially coming from more conservative communities, like just how hard it is with families, just how hard it is to come mm -hmm. out in your job in Mississippi or in Texas, uh, where a lot of my friends are. And, you know, all of the rainbow Coke cans in the world aren't going to make <laughs> that experience in your day-to-day -day life any easier. Yeah. So I would say, one, just understand that the, the fights, the battles sort of that we experience in our day-to-day -day lives can still feel pretty intense sometimes. And the other thing would be, you know, I think there's a difference between sort of like tolerating people and being like, okay, yeah, sure, like we're fine that you exist and really like valuing people and saying you're somebody that I want to help take care of my kids or to lead um, in organizations or ministries or whatever. And we, we see you as some of the, someone that we want to learn from and sort of like submit ourselves to like being able to, to trust us, I guess, um, with more leadership and things like that could be um, a step that a lot of liberals I think could take. But I would say generally most progressive communities do really seem to value and respect LGBT people. Is there a way for a church to straddle this issue? I, I know of churches who are trying to do this, who are trying to say, 
look, we're not going to reverse our view of what the Bible says, but we are going to be radically open to homosexual Christians worshiping with us. Mm-hmm. Is that actually possible for yeah. for that to happen? Well, okay, for one, I would say no matter what, like that is already way better than like what I grew up in, right? Okay. And then what most of us grew up in. So like that's that's much better than I would say where a lot of churches were 10 years ago. What I would say is I would encourage consistency. I think a lot of LGBT people are really sensitive to inconsistencies. So churches that are kind of okay with like divorce and remarriage, but then they hold more like kind of a draw the line on LGBT gay relationships. That's a problem. So I would say like be kind of aware of like whether or not you're applying these beliefs about marriage sort of across the board. And the other thing would be, be clear about, you don't want to do like the bait and switch where it's like, we love everybody. And then you're like, oh, great. I feel so loved here. I want to be like a greeter playing the worship band. And it's like, no, we love you, but you can't play in the worship band. Yeah. So I, I tend to think that you can straddle that line if you're like, you know what? We do want to see you, you know, use your gifts to serve the church. So we have places for you to serve or uh, we're all about you playing the guitar in our service or whatever, maybe, you know, um, as long as there's, there's sort of honesty and clarity and a willingness to, to be in dialogue with one another. Yeah. I, I have respect for the churches who are trying to accomplish that. It seems to me like a very, a very difficult position to put oneself in those on the right, especially in the church. You mentioned this a little bit earlier. In what way do you think they are led by fear and not love? I think in some ways, and hopefully this is changing, but in some ways I think there is the actual like ick factor that they're, they're picturing like a gay pride parade and thinking like there's a gay lifestyle where we just like dance naked in the streets and it's just like Mardi Gras, right? They kind of think that's all gay people all the time. And there's like a fear that we're just going to like go down this slippery slope of like sexual liberation. And, and so there's like all this fear that's just kind of based on like an ick factor, which, which doesn't in any way represent most LGBT people I know, and certainly not most LGBT Christians. But for those who, who do know and love LGBT people and have relationships and, and know that it's not just like, you know, crazy sex everywhere, I would say um, there is a lot of fear about moving away from a more of a literal interpretation on these things. And it's like, if you start, you know, if, if the Bible doesn't mean what it says word for word here, how do we know what it means? What, how do we know it means what it says here? And yeah. How do we know where to differentiate? And so they were kind of okay with doing that on something like slavery or a lot are okay with doing it on women's equality. But I think once you go to something that's more sec, you know, sexual in nature, there's a lot of fear that it's going to like turn into polygamy and who knows what else. Calm their fear that it's not going to turn into polygamy and polyamory. Why do you think it's a different argument? Yeah, because marriage is still between two people. um, And we see marriage as a reflection of God's covenantal relationship with the church. So we see it as as a place where one of the only places where day in and day out for a whole life, you are like laying down your life for another person. And we see it as, as like Eugene Rogers says, a school of virtue where um, you're growing in generosity and hospitality and you're being like sort of trained in godliness and holiness. Like this is we view it. We have a high view of marriage as sort of like the reflection of Christ's love for the church. And that's like a really far cry from <laughs> sexual liberation and, and do yeah. whatever you want and, you know, 
all bets are off. Like that's, that's just not what most of the LGBT Christians I know are interested in. So you're not just saying sex is all about consent. That's not really the rallying cry of your contingent. It's, it's saying, look, we're just trying to apply a biblical understanding of marriage or like a a sacred understanding of marriage. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're simply saying that Paul and other biblical writers did not understand sexual orientation. If -hmm. they had, they would have had analogies and stories and, and whatever for two same sex people sharing the same covenantal relationship. That's, that's basically Mm -hmm. your position. Totally. Yeah. And much of it for me is about the need for uh, that sort of sanctifying relationship. Like it's just so not about sex for me. Like when you think about a marriage, it's about like, as Wes Hill would say, somebody knowing your plane's going to land. It's about having somebody to come home to at the end of a, a long day at work that is knows your history and knows how you're triggered and people who together you can sort of recount together how like that near death experience shaped you into who you were 10 years ago like yeah. those are the kinds of things that we we are longing for in a marriage and i th- i think there's like a, a sort of misconception a lot of times in conservative communities that we just want people to say like oh just go do whatever you want and sleep with anybody and like we're just going to say it's all okay and that's definitely not what I'm advocating for, and it's not what theologians who have more progressive interpretations are advocating for either. Now, there is already emerging from what appears to many of us to be sort of the same leftist sexual advocates, (laughs) the the Dan Savages of the world and, and whatnot, that polyamory is the new front for sexual rights. Might Christians who affirm gay two person marriage actually be allies with more conservative Christians in the fight or conversation against sort of more blatant sexual rights that are purely based on consent? Yeah, I think we probably have a lot more shared values, to be honest, than we often realize. And I I feel that especially um, when I see friends and, and people I love going through a divorce I have a lot of compassion. Like, there's no judgment. I do not know the circumstances that um, move people to do that. But it does always make me really sad uh, because I I think, you know, my conservative upbringing and many of my conservative values do say, like, gosh, if there's any way to make this work, and it's not an abusive situation, if there's any way they can make this work, I want to see it work. And so I do feel a lot of times like kind of like an old conservative when I see people just getting a divorce because they weren't feeling it anymore. And I'm like, man, we've got it. Yeah. I just, I, I, I want to see something stronger, you know, it sounds like your primary driver here is marriage as a beautiful covenantal and kind of like sanctifying activity. And mm-hmm. you, you want you and your homosexual friends to be able to experience that same gift. Yeah. Like, I really think when God said it's not good for humans to be alone, like, (laughs) that was like, that's true. He meant it, yeah. Yeah. And so I I feel like that's been true in my life and in my friends' lives. Um, The fruit of communities that love and accept LGBT people wherever they land theologically just seems to create really, be a really positive fruit. Interesting. So you're saying the results of a community opening their minds and hearts to having been wrong or at least to being against the Christian status quo on this issue has other effects as well. 
Mm-hmm. Name a few. Um, I would say communities that will just say, even if they say we don't know where we are theologically on this, but we love you no matter what. And yeah. we're for you. And we want you to babysit our kids. And we want you to serve in our youth group. That creates like a much healthier and more well-adjusted LGBT person than someone who's always hearing like, uh, well, you know, what's going on in that relationship with your friend? What were you doing on your computer last night at 1 a.m.? Yeah. What's been going, you know, there's just always sense of suspicion and scrutiny that does take a toll on somebody's mental health. And, and I've just seen that the fruit of communities where you're like, man, you're loving, accepted here, no matter what. Um, it leads to people being, having a stronger relationship with God, feeling more loved by God. And when we feel more loved by God and other people, we generally lead healthier lives. Yeah, that's interesting. Of course, that's going to come up against a lot of people saying, well, that sounds nice, but I'm just trying to believe what's true. And so even if it's hard or appears on the surface to be counterproductive, like, you know, Jesus does say you'll be persecuted and hated for my sake. And so how do you respond in love to someone with that? You know, I would say it's a legitimate perspective and fear that, look, I, I get where you're coming from, Julie, but it's so easy for me to just be gay inclusive. All my friends are gay inclusive. I am a millennial, I, you know, whatever. The tide of the culture is moving that way. I want to make sure I'm not abandoning God's truth for something that's easy. Like when you, when you meet someone that is struggling with, with that way of looking at it, what do you tend to say? Yeah, I would say, first of all, good for you for being that like earnest and taking your faith so seriously, because I wouldn't want to see people just move and become more affirming or shift their theology because like it, it seems like it's easier or more popular in culture. Yeah. So first I would applaud them for taking their faith so seriously. And then I would say, get to know some gay Christian friends and read a couple books. I really like David Gushy's book, Changing Our Mind. Read a couple different books and just consider the possibility of, is there something here that I can draw from this that might be better than my knowledge coming into this? And, and take seriously both arguments. And if at the end of that, if you seriously get to know LGBT Christians and you take, you know, take seriously some of these scholars that have done this work and you're like, I just can't get there. I'm okay with that. Like I'm totally okay with us having different beliefs. I think it's just a matter of having enough respect to do the hard work and to be emotionally invested. Yeah. Okay. So let's transition from talking about conservatives that you can still feel kin with because they've taken the issue seriously to liberals who don't take the issue seriously. Let's, let's, let's aim our gaze at the progressives. Now, where do you find progressives who are not in fact true allies because they're just driven by snobbery or their own fears and anxiety of not being accepted, you know, by coworkers and friends rather than being driven by love? Like what's the difference between a progressive ally and someone who's just lining up in the correct line to not be made fun of? Hmm. I think um, sincerely valuing the LGBT people in their lives in a way that um, not just having like one gay friend because you need to say you have one gay friend, yeah. uh, just like you need to have one black friend and, you know, but but really going, gosh, you see the world in a different way than I do. 
what am I missing? What are ways that I can help? What are ways that I can support you? Uh, what's important to you and how can it, where can I show up for you and be a part of that? Um, so, so not just assuming that it's all cool and everything's fine, but really like taking seriously our, our very real human experiences and struggles and gifts. You're saying to not like to still acknowledge it, it's still a minority group. And mm-hmm. so just to simply wear a, a rainbow flag sticker on pride day is not the same as like getting in the trenches with a persecuted people group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even when it's not be, like persecution, let's say like even it, it doesn't need to be like showing up to fight the battle because like most of us are just like living our lives. Right. Right. Um, but being able to go, hey, there's something that you bring to the table as a minority, as someone who's different than me, that could benefit us. You have a perspective. Yeah. How are we doing? How could we create, you know, communities that are that seem safer in your mind and just like valuing, I guess, what we bring to the table. Following up on that, is acceptance or tolerance the same as love? And if not, what's the difference in your mind? Uh, I think no. (laughs) Tolerance feels like, sure, yeah, I'll put up with you because, like, there's sort of some sort of social mandate. Yeah. Uh, Whereas love, to me, is a sacrifice. Love is valuing somebody else more than I value myself and being willing to um, stick our necks out for one another and bear with one another's burdens. So, no, tolerance is definitely not the same as as love. Is there a way that if someone is a progressive ally, they consider themselves, you know, an LGBT ally, how do they push for love rather than simply acceptance? Uh, For one, I think the allies who I would say I'm most impressed with (laughs) um, are allies who get to know LGBT people, get to know... uh, our, our concerns, our fears, our struggles, our lives, and ask questions and share life with us and then take some of that information back to their communities. So when they hear like Uncle Larry at Thanksgiving that's making homophobic comments, and by that I just mean like, you know, saying derogatory things about gay people or sort of disparaging LGBT people, that they would just say like, hey, Uncle Larry, like, did you know this and this and this and this? And just and, and begin to bring people along in their communities more. Okay, to get current hot topic-y for a second, the not baking cakes for gay weddings, not taking photos for gay weddings kind of a thing. I'm curious what your stance is on that. Do you believe that those people should have the liberty to say, fine, I'm not, they're not going to do that, and, and homosexual brides or grooms will just book other vendors? Like, do you, do you just think the free market will take care of that, or do you think that there's actually a cost to that kind of, quote, religious liberty? I have conflicted feelings about it. You know, I want to say that if a cake baker doesn't want to bake a cake for LGBT people, like, I don't really want them to bake my cake anyway. Like, so just go somewhere else. Like, I want to say, like, let them sort of have their beliefs and move on. Where it gets really complicated, though, is for one, like the Kim Davis situation where she's like a federal employee. um, That seemed like really clear cut to me that something like that is... Is wrong. Just refresh our listeners on what that was again. Um, so she was a, a clerk that gives marriage licenses, and she refused to give one to a same-sex couple yeah. for their same-sex wedding last year. So that, to me, is like breaking the law. It's like not doing their job because marriage equality is the law of the land. And and so in my mind, like if you can't follow sort of the law and you're a federal employee, then you should probably find another job. Yeah. So to me, it, it is sort of a case-by-case basis. I want as much as possible for 
religious people to have the freedom to live according to their conscience. And so for sure, like I want churches to be able to hire within their values and I want Catholic charities to be able to carry out adoptions and whatnot according to their values. But at the same time, I would hope that they would begin to see the effects of that, that they would care about their witness to LGBT people and ask themselves, am I a better witness by denying people service when I'm giving these services to all kinds of people who's who I might not agree with day in and day out? Hmm. Or am I a better witness by choosing to serve them and choosing to develop a relationship with them and choosing to see them the same way I see every other human being who some I agree with, some I don't, some are flawed, some are not. But how is my witness when I'm singling them out? Yeah. As sort of a special category that I refuse to serve. Sure. Which letters matter? Like, this is a silly question for me coming outside of the community, but like, when I, when I, how, where do I stop? What is, is, <laughs> is Q supposed to encapsulate all the rest of them? Yeah. So there's like LGBTQIAI, like, there, there are a lot. I would say every human being matters. And, Every human experience is different. And so listen to the language of the person you're talking to and use whatever language they use. And then beyond that, I think LGBT is fine. LGBTQ is fine. Gay is fine. But try to be as inclusive as possible while realizing that there are a lot of different expressions out there. And like we're not probably going to encapsulate them all in our speech. Yeah. So this last question is... One for you, but it's also your answer will serve as a model for those of us who want to have these conversations with a certain type of conservative person. So I want to describe this person. This is a person, I have many friends who feel this way, and I feel this way sometimes to varying degrees. There's a view that like, when will it end? How many letters can we add to LGBTQ? Am I supposed to immediately say that Caitlyn Jenner looks beautiful um, as a woman? Like, when does it end? Like, do I need to spend my entire life being shamed into having more and more progressive views every year to be someone I would never recognize when I was 25 years old? And there's an exhaustion, I think, that kind of sets in, especially with people who are just fundamentally conservative, just generally in their outlook, that place a value very naturally on sticking to something that's good and that works. And then it does feel sometimes, and I think especially with information age, how much social media has exploded, that the goalposts keep moving. And the problem, of course, with a goalpost moving is a goalpost is supposed to be final. And, you know, you don't need to score a touchdown now at the back of the end zone. Like you just score a touchdown at the front of the end zone. That's always a touchdown. I'm just describing this person. Now, I think that you and I would agree that that's a reasonable response in a lot of ways to sort of Mm -hmm. very quick social change. How, How do you talk to a person like that and both acknowledge that feeling while also sort of lovingly trying to convince them of your position? I would say, first of all, if I know that you love me, And I know like we've had good long cries together. We've had road trips together. We've had like midnight pizza runs together. I am not going to be like offended by 
you like saying the wrong thing. Like I have a lot of friends that are going to be like, uh, that will be like, Oh, I mean, so they're queer. I mean, no, they're not queer. They're gay. I, you know, and they're just like really worried about like getting the words right. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's fine. Like whatever. Like I know your heart. And so there's no question that you can ask that's going to offend me if your heart is for me. And I would say enter in the conversations, ask all the questions, tell the truth, but then also don't let this conversation take up too much space be okay with agreeing to disagree sometimes. Be okay with landing in different places and then revisiting the conversation down the road. Uh, I think a lot of times we can we can see a, div- a divide here as more significant than it needs to be. Because, um, yeah. like I said, we've all, we're all in a relationship together with all kinds of disagreements in the church. You know, we disagree about war. We disagree about the death penalty, and sometimes we change over time. And and so I would say to all of us. Take our, the relationship, take the deep love, take all the other things that make the beauty of the friendship. More, Give that more weight than where somebody lands on this one thing. And to the conservative, I would just ask them to keep an open mind and to respect that, respect us as sincere Christians, as people who the Spirit of God is moving through, and respect us enough to, to truly listen to where we're coming from with an open mind that, that we could be right. Maybe we're not, I don't know, but that we're certainly sincere in in trying to honor God with with our sexuality in a really complicated situation. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, if people want to keep in touch with you, where can they find you? Well, Dan, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm a, I am love your podcast and I'm now a huge fan of you. Uh, but they could find me on Twitter at my handle is Julie underscore Rogers, R-O-D-G-E-R-S, like the Dodgers. Or they could go to my website, which is julie-rogers.com. Yeah, I, I keep it updated with blogs sometimes, and I need to update it with a recent video I gave at the Reformation Project and some things like that. But those are some ways to keep up. Awesome. Well, we'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks so much, Dan. Cheers. Join this ongoing discussion at the Depolarized Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. Find me on Twitter, Dan K-O-C-H, or check out depolarizedpodcast.com. We'll see you guys next week.